Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, this episode of Other People is brought to you by Stitcher Smart Radio. You can hear this podcast while on the go with Stitcher Smart Radio a free news and talk mobile app available right now for your smartphone. And hey, when you download Stitcher, you have a chance to win some money. Downloading is quick and easy. Just find Stitcher in the App Store, download it, it's free, it takes just a few seconds, and then when you register, hit the promo code box. It should say, tell us how you heard about Stitcher, where it says that, enter the promo code other people. When you do that, you're automatically entered to win 100 bucks. The latest episode of the program will then be waiting for you in your favorites, and you'll get access to a ton of other amazing content, always available on demand with no syncing. That's the Stitcher app. Go download it at stitcher.com, free of charge, available for your iPhone, your Android, or your tablet computer, and don't forget to enter the promo code OTHERPEOPLE when you register. This is an app. You can apply it. Go and get it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is moving at the speed of sound. This is me podcasting for you. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, I'm Brad Listy here in Los Angeles for this, the final episode of 2013. Uh, Another year in the books, 365 turns of the earth. The next uh, program, uh, the next time I speak with you, it will be New Year's Day 2014. Today's guest is Jennifer Michael Hecht. She has a new book out called Stay, A History of Suicide and the Philosophies Against It. It's available now from Yale University Press. Uh, I spent my holidays reading this book for uh, reasons that many of you are likely aware of. Uh, On December 19th, uh, Ned Vizzini took his own life in Brooklyn. Uh, Ned was a very gifted writer. He was a guest on this show uh, just last year. Uh, in episode 131. And uh, I consider him a friend. You know, I didn't know him very well, uh, but I did know him, and I got a chance to spend some time with him uh, on four different occasions over the course of the last year of his life. 
Uh, he sat right here in this room with me last December. And uh, we had a really good talk. So uh, losing him is a terrible heartbreak. And losing him to suicide uh, only compounds uh, the sense of tragedy. Because, you know, Ned was very open about his struggles with depression and uh, suicidal ideation. Uh, he wrote about these difficulties in his work. And, uh, you know, his books are beloved. And they've helped a lot of people and will continue to do so. Especially young people. But, you know, unfortunately, Ned was not able to uh, win his battle against depression. And he made the decision to leave. So, what to say about that? You know, I, I think first of all, my heart goes out to everyone, you know, who feels the loss. Especially Ned's family, who have been on my mind almost constantly since I heard the news. Uh, his wife, Sabra, his son, Felix, his parents, his siblings, uh, his close friends. Uh, you know, I've lost uh, people close to me to suicide, and I know what it feels like, unfortunately. Uh, you know, I actually arrived in New York City on the day that Ned died. Uh, just a coincidence. Uh, I was there for a family vacation, as I mentioned on a previous episode. And uh, I didn't learn the news about Ned until the following day, on uh, December 20th. Which uh, happened to be the 18th anniversary of my friend Judd. Uh, taking his own life uh, back when uh, we were in college. So, not a good day for me, uh, apparently. And, uh, you know, just generally speaking, the holidays are a tough time for human beings. And uh, I know I'm never going to forget where I was when I heard that news. You know, I was in our hotel, and my wife and daughter were taking a nap, and I was on the computer, and uh, I read the news on Twitter. And my heart just broke. I felt I felt sick. And uh, I spent the next two hours reading. Uh, and I wrote some emails to uh, friends of mine here in town uh, who were closer to Ned than I was. Uh, letters of condolence. And uh, I just thought a lot about his family. So it's, it's just awful. It's a huge tragedy. And... Uh, I think it was a preventable tragedy. I have to believe that. And I, I think that's why I wanted to talk to Jennifer Michael Hecht on today's program. I wanted to discuss, I, wa I want to discuss uh, suicide openly right now uh, with someone who's taken the time to uh, really investigate it and think about it because I know it's on my mind and I know a lot of us in the literary community have been thinking about it over the holidays because of Ned uh, or just because of the holidays. And, you know, Jennifer's book makes a really compelling case for staying alive and for persevering in the face of uh, pain and difficulty. Uh, and it uh, illuminates the obligation that we have to one another as human beings um, it's a deeper obligation than I think we, we might sometimes realize. Because, you know, like I said, I didn't know Ned Vizzini very well, and yet uh, I feel his loss so acutely. 
It's very painful for me. And it's very sad. And frankly, it's a little scary uh, to consider. And I I know that I'm not alone in feeling this way. Uh, To watch the outpouring of grief and affection that unfolded online uh, in the aftermath of his death was extraordinary. From friends and fans and coworkers and acquaintances and strangers, uh, I think we all feel it when something like this happens, or, or the vast majority of us feel it when something like this happens. And uh, I can't help but think of writers in particular when we lose one of our own like this. All of a sudden, uh, there, there's the sense of commonality and community uh, that comes into sharper focus, at least for a little while. It does that for me anyway. And uh, I, I guess I just hope that as we all go forward, uh, we will remember how much of an effect, how much of an impact we have on one another uh, through what we say and what we write and what we do. And if that sounds hokey, uh, I don't give a shit. And uh, I dedicate this episode to the memory of Ned Vizzini and I dedicate it to his family. Hey, everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. My guest today, once again, is Jennifer Michael Hecht. Her new book, Stay, A History of Suicide and the Philosophies Against It, is now available from Yale University Press. Uh, I'm really happy to have her here on the program, and I hope you guys enjoy our talk. So here she is. This is Jennifer Michael Hecht, and her new book, once again, is called stay i am in brooklyn and i'm sitting at my desk in the sort of basement and um looking out the windows at the trees most of them bare some with a few leaves some blue and white clouds okay uh well it's it's you know there's some sort of like sadness as i hear you say you're in brooklyn because one of the main reasons that i wanted to talk with you uh is because uh an author who's been on this program 
And, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I consider him a friend. I didn't know him well, but mm-hmm. I didn't know him mm-hmm. and I know his wife, um, uh, took his own life in Brooklyn, mm-hmm. uh, just before Christmas. And, you know, it's been, on my, know. it's been on my mind ever since. And it's Ned Vizzini, uh, terrific writer and a, and a good guy. Yeah. And it's just very sad. And I thought that a lot of, you know, I know that a lot of my listeners were feeling this as well. And I thought it might be useful to have a discussion with somebody who has really dug in and done a lot of thinking and a lot of good writing on the topic of suicide. So I want to to say that right off the bat, because that's really what's that's what brought me to your book, um, which I read over the holiday. (laughs) A nice Christmas read, you know, Uh, but really, you know, but useful. And and this is something I should also say that has touched my life, um, you know, before Ned. So. Mm -hmm. I have experience with this. I think that the uh, the profession of writing uh, is obviously uh, it's got its history with this kind of uh, For sure. tragedy, yeah. and I thought that we should talk. So thank you yeah. for taking the time. And, I'm delighted. And I wanted to. I guess I, a good place for us to start with you is to um, ask about your own experiences with suicide, um, which I know uh, guided you towards writing this book. Yeah, um, absolutely. I had two friends who I uh, we all knew each other when we were, we were up at Columbia getting our PhDs. Uh, they were studying poetry, and I was in the history department. Um, but because I was already writing poetry, we we got to be friends. And um, you know, uh, I was sort of close with one of them for a while, and the other one it was always a light friendship. But I kept seeing them for, you know, 30 years. You, uh, just We all lived in the same town. We were all poets. And I uh, stayed close with one of them for a while. And by by uh, the, the late 200s, I wasn't really closely in touch with either of them. But um, when I heard that uh, the first one, um, Rachel, had taken her own life, I, I was devastated. Um, and, and not not just for her and our past and all the things it means, but also because I'd been going through some depression that included a certain amount of suicidal ideation. You know, I never, I never got anywhere near wanting to do it. I, I have two kids and that can be very protective. Um, but, uh, but I, I was, I was mortified. I'm also a slightly famous atheist. I wrote a book called Doubt a History um, that the whole secularist movement took up. I didn't really even know there was one um, when I wrote it, but it made me into somebody who, uh, unlike a lot of the other secularist speakers, was very much into the sort of poetics of life. I even invented the idea of poetic atheism to distinguish uh, a kind of atheism that's very interested in the arts and in meaning and in philosophy and poetry. Um, so I was trying to figure out a way for a secular person to 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 parse suicide. And I was getting somewhere. Um, and then Rachel did it too. Um, and I was floored because, you know, she, she and I had mourned Sarah together and she seemed just as... So wait, so Sarah was the first? I'm sorry? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so, Sarah so. was the first and then Rachel. And so when, when it happened with Rachel, it was about two weeks later and I sat down and I wrote a blog post that was completely from the heart, though it had all the ideas that I'd been thinking of for the year and a half since the first one. And um, it kind of went viral. 
uh, it told people not to kill themselves, that it was wrong, and that um, that meant staying alive even when you felt useless and miserable was, was this huge contribution to society. Um, it, it's uh, suicide's very contagious mm-hmm. when one person does it. Um, more people in the community will do it. Uh, it's, there's been hundreds and hundreds of sociological and epidemiological studies that show this to be the case. Well, so that was just my, my uh, sort of grounding point. Well, I was going to say, too, because uh, you know, my first experience with suicide was in college when a close friend of mine, we had been on a study abroad together, uh, and like two weeks after we got back, out of nowhere, he killed himself. Mm-hmm. Mm. And that, and and it was uh, it was an interesting. That's juxtap- hard. Yeah, it was an interesting juxtaposition of events because uh, I think that the peak of my youth was the the final two or three weeks of that study abroad. I mean, we had had such a good sure. time, and sure. I went from that feeling to suddenly being yeah. utterly ju- just yeah. you know uh, I don't even blown away. It blows you apart. Yeah, and and then the other thing that I wanted to say to touch upon something you were talking about earlier is that up until that point. I had never considered suicide uh, mm. ever, and once mm-hmm. he did it, suddenly I found myself being like, "Well, why, why, why not do it? Why, why would uh, right. you know, this is a possibility now? Not that I ever that is the effect, right? That's, I, that is a very common effect. And I never, uh, you know, fortunately, I've never uh, come close, you know. But I, right. I wrote an entire novel about it. It was obviously stuck in my head, and wow. um, you know, it became a, a fixation. And I think for people yeah. who have lost somebody close to them. Um, in this way, it's impossible yeah. not to have it become a preoccupation. And, right. you know, you have to, you know, you have to guard against the contagion. Right. Exactly. You have to guard against the contagion. And um, and really, you know, I haven't said this in a lot of places or maybe anywhere, but um, one of the ways I think of the, the book is I'm, I worked up a bunch of ideas, a philosophy that works for me. I no longer fear my own suicide. Now, I don't go around letting people know that I was ever close enough to fear it, but I, I, I was. It was scary. It would come into my mind unbidden, and I had to get rid of it. And I had to have some reason to get rid of that thought, and I didn't always have a reason to get rid of the thought. So it was... Um, it was it was something that's been written about through history uh, that that many people spend their whole lives vacillating on this question, and the vacillation is worse than than anything else. Um, so I really wanted to uh, I'd come up with some some good ideas. I'd thought clearly about them, and then I did some research on them, and I found some great minds echoing or saying something adjacent to what I was thinking, and I put it all together in, in the hope that that somebody who knows that they might feel this way at some point or somebody who doesn't know but it might happen um, reads it and and it serves as a sort of uh, uh, like a, like a gate up at a bridge it just it just has, has a conceptual barrier that lets you not do it. And I remind people all the time, we, we're, we're animals and we have homicidal thoughts. You know, we have thoughts, I'd love to kill that guy. Um, but we don't even begin to worry ourselves about whether we should or not. Because we very early on put, put down a line for ourselves, I don't kill. I totally don't kill. I'm not going to, that's out of the question. That's not who I am. And I think we can do the same thing with suicide where you've thought it through and then you're done thinking it through and you can just use the certainty. The wonderful thing is that suicidal impulse, though they may 
return and return and return, they're not really long-lasting in any given period. It tends to go away. Well, that's the, the real feeling of doing it. Well, that's the thing with thought, you know, is that uh, yeah. you have these thoughts. Like I, if I'm being honest about myself, I think when right. I'm at my lowest or if I'm like really frustrated, it usually happens yeah. in, in a frustrated state of mind. I have all, right. I have these almost like cartoonish thoughts of suicide right. where I'm like, right. I feel like I'm like Wiley Coyote or something. And I'll just get, yeah. I think I have like a strong uh, streak of humor, like dark humor right. in my makeup. And so uh-huh. if I'm just getting pummeled by life, I will Im- sometimes have these like really dark thoughts that are, that are, I think maybe, um, it's, what do you call it? Like uh, instinctive self protection to make it a little bit cartoonish or it feels, right, it feels right. a little bit like a softening, but I'll like imagine myself like blowing up, like in almost like in the desert, like Wiley. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. a, a really strange thing to admit, but uh, it's an interesting one. Well, one of the purposes of this book also that I didn't realize going in is to let people know how common these thoughts are. I mean, it's it's a big part of the human makeup to sometimes have have a thought like that, either a very serious dark one or a lighter one. But um, people today have overemphasized the medical explanation, the biological explanation of of suicide and depression certainly of suicide because there are a lot of people who kill themselves who aren't depressed. They've just met a major setback, can't deal with the idea of facing someone about it and um, has a gun nearby, you know, and and that that can sometimes do it. But, but certainly um, even depression, we, we see it as this medical thing so that we see suicide as inevitable. Once it happens, we say, well, that person was just so depressed and that was biological and that just had to happen. Um, but we look through history and we see so many contradictions to that. For one thing, there's never been more meds, uh, you know, psychodynamic meds and and different kinds of therapists and social workers, and the suicide rate has skyrocketed. In the last 10 years alone, it's shocked observers 10 years ago by hitting uh, by hitting 30,000 a year in America, and it just it's last year it came close to 40,000. Oh I mean, these are insane numbers. We lose more we lose more people to suicide than to murder. We lose more people to suicide until you're about 44 to more, more to suicide than, than almost everything but accidents. And in some places, suicide is outdoing accidents too. Um, well, so, we, well, yeah. I mean, just with respect to, um, you know, the people and their, their, uh, medical conditions, like you talk about right. depression. I think about my friend Judd who took his own life when I was in college Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, one of the big parts of or one of the big um, problems or challenges with suicide grief is not knowing quite why. Like you don't get right. the only person with the answer is the person who's no longer here. Right. And, you know, I've come, you know, this is almost I mean, what's so crazy is that I found out about Ned on the uh, to the day, 18 years after Judd took his own life. Mm-hmm. The holidays are a fraught time. So it was kind of yeah. grim in that way and bitter, you know just kind of a, a, a sad, you know, a sad day. But, yeah. uh, I find myself thinking more and more uh, as the years go by that it was, just, it was a really shitty night and he made right. a really shitty destructive decision. And right. that if he would have just hung on, he, it would have passed. Yeah. And 
I think that's often yes. the case. You know, if you can just, yes. just get, I hear wait, it from it people all over the place. Um, you know, parents describing the loss of their daughter 10 years later and having to come down to, yeah, somebody stole her bike that day. Yeah, she had a bad day. You know, she was a brilliant artist. She had a bad day. And, and, and they were, they were the means. Um, it's, uh, it's extraordinary how, well, for one thing, we have moods. Human beings have moods. We fall in love. We fall out of love. We hate a movie, then we love it. We love a book, and then we hate it. Um, everything about what we believe changes sometimes when we when we meet someone who we find uh, terribly attractive. Um, we're, we're, there are a lot of us in here. Um, a lot of individual selves in, inside each of us, and there are some continuities. But, but think about it: suicide is letting one of your moods murder all the others. Right. It's not fair. It's just not fair. Your future self has a right to live, to get over what you're feeling right now, and to live. And your past self made all these plans and did all this work, and it wasn't doing it so that so that one mood could could take it all away. And if you think about that for a pretty good, give it a pretty good amount of thought, it really does kick in when you're feeling bad, and you do say to yourself, "Okay, my task right now is not to, to decide whether to kill myself." or how to do it, my task right now is to just stay alive. Just stay alive, be useless, be a burden. There's no way you can be as much of a burden as you would be if you took your life. No way. Sometimes, lots of people are crying and useless. It happens. Even if you're not a classically depressed person, sometimes you need the bed for a couple of days. And there are times when people feel, look, I'm useless. And they can base that on very little. We all know how self-hating we can be at times. They can base this on very little and decide that they're useless. And if they're useless, they're just using up resources, and it's a reasonable decision to get out of the way, except that they're going to ruin the lives of all sorts of people, both the people who love them, which I don't tend to concentrate on because sometimes people kill themselves to hurt the people they love, right? To hurt, hurt the people close by. But if you realized that not only those people. But if you're a middle-aged woman, uh, you know, a middle-aged white woman in an apartment somewhere feeling like like life isn't worth living and you take your life, it's going to happen again. Another middle-aged woman who, who you probably, if you could see through some magic window, you would be rooting for her to, to come out of the funk and start painting or something um, and, and find new love and, and learn to garden and, you know, find the things that give people joy and, and life. And sometimes we don't have access to that, but we have to have a sort of grown-up inside ourselves that says no. And we have that grown up for things like murder and things like, um, you know, a lot of self-destructive things. But nobody's talking about suicide. And once we start talking about it, if we talk about it well, it, the numbers go down. We know this because if there's a suicide in a, in a particular community and people go in and, and really work over the community in terms of talking about uh, not killing themselves, the suicide doesn't, the rate doesn't spike. And otherwise it does. So we know good talk can help. Okay. And so what about, like, just to uh, use uh, another literary example, um, what about, you know, really intense cases of mental illness or neurochemical 
right. um, disorder. Like, right. da- like David Foster Wallace, I remember reading, um, you know, about him in the aftermath of his suicide and the amount of medication he was taking and just how grim his medical condition was, whether, you know, I guess there's some debate as to whether or not these drugs, um, I don't know. It seemed like he couldn't live without them. And then once he went off them, um, he couldn't then restart them. You know, I don't know, understand all that stuff well enough. To- yeah. Look, the, the one of the things we, we all have to be hyper aware of when we go on and off drugs is that, um, that we, you know, before we go off or before we go on, we have to say to ourselves, I'm not going to let this kill me. If I start to feel terrible, I'm going to, you know, at worst get hospitalized, but I'm not going to let this experiment kill me. Um, you got to go in with that really in the forefront of your mind. And you have to tell somebody else you don't want it to kill you and you need, you might need help. Um, the drugs work for a lot of people, but they have side effects that people don't like. And um, sometimes they work so well that one thinks one doesn't need them anymore and you go off them. And sometimes you get a good six months before you feel bad again. Uh Foster Wallace had been on a drug for a very long time, and he felt a little bit um, like it made the world cloudy. And he uh, he went off it, and and that's that's when he um, suicided. I mean, before that, you can find mentions in his writing about how he felt that he finally beat the whole uh, suicide thing. He'd he'd gotten off drugs and he'd gotten off alcohol and he'd made a lot of progress and um you know he 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 was he was in a happy situation um and we know he loved a lot about his life we also know that there were things the writing was frustrating he loved his students um but uh yeah he went off the drug and and it did change his brain chemistry and he didn't have a sort of network set up around him to make sure that that he survived that and and that's what happened the other part of your question is what what about someone who who it's not even very periodic they are miserable all the time that's very rare most people even who suffer a, a two or three month depression which is a long one um will also come back and 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 have you know three months or six months of feeling good um and drugs keep changing and you keep going to therapy and, you know, it doesn't have to be an endless cycle. But my point is, if, if, if a couple of doctors and a couple of family members look at you and say, if you need to be done with this, we could understand it, you're in a different category. If your family members look at you and say, all this suffering is so much if you really need, if you really want to kill yourself, if they, you know, if the suffering person brings it up and other people aren't arguing against, well, then you're into sort of the category of, of euthanasia where you have a, a disease that's killing you and it's not even really suicide. It, the disease is killing you. You're just changing how it does it. Um, I think that, that that is infinitesimally rare in comparison to the great bulk of suicides, infinitesimally. I mean, the vast majority of of, um, army suicides and and in the army uh, military last year, more people died of suicide than combat. And most of them were not, their friends and family say they did not seem depressed, um, but but more than 52% uh, had lost a major relationship within the last three months. And they're all 18 so you know you got to do a little work here to make sure that 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 people who are not 
super ill. Don't think that thoughts of suicide mean that they're super ill. And then therefore think, oh, I should just end it because these thoughts of suicide mean that I'm, I'm profoundly mentally ill. It's not the case. Okay, so let's, let's try to, uh, I want to try to like slow this down for a second and uh, zoom in on the actual experience of these really intense negative emotions. Because, yeah. you know, if, uh, an emotion is a body's response to a thought. And a thought is a form of energy, and a suicidal thought is dark energy. <laughs> it's, uh, okay. it's negative. I mean, am I making sense so far? Sure. Uh, I, 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 you go on. I, I was just going to say, like, how do, how do people take care of those dark thoughts? You just watch it. You just say, there it is. I'm going to let it pass. I'm going to stick around. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, how can people I do. cope with those dark thoughts? Well, there's two things. Um, one is, is uh, you know, it's a bit of a gambit, but it seems to be true. I have a whole chapter in, in the book today uh, talking about how uh, so many great minds and people of great courage talk about their periods of depression as what made them strong enough and wise enough to do what they later did. So, there are ways in which we feel sometimes like I'm doing nothing today, but not dying. I, I lie in bed and I don't enjoy it. I can't watch tell. I can't anything. I'm just depressed. Right. Um, you can have in the back of your mind that even if you don't understand it, this experience may enrich your later life. Um, but adding to that, I can also say it's just, it just sucks. It's terrible. It, grief is awful, and depression is is essentially grief. It's it, it's grief for what you wanted and what you expected the world to be. It's it's agony. And um, no, I can't fix the agony. What I can do is say that that I know that if you kill yourself, other people die. And that means that if you don't, you're saving some lives. For me, that's an active enough thing that, you know, a, a lot of the reason that, as you say, writers kill themselves, poets and writers, long track record. The numbers aren't actually that standout when you compare them to, to other professions at other times, but they're there. I believe that it's nothing to do with the writing. It's that deeply introspective people, people who who have sadness in their hearts and disappointments in their childhoods and in their in their experience growing up, um, trauma or neglect. These people are drawn to writing, drawn to poetry. And their need to prove themselves to the world, uh, their need to get the approval that they weren't getting when they when they were growing up that is what drives them to be such prolific and and fantastic hard-working artists who get results and get fame and then we're shocked that all that results and fame and they kill themselves well no no the same thing killed themselves that gave them all that art and all that fame they were running towards some kind of affirmation that was going to take the pain away and that's why sometimes when people are really hitting it big, you have to be most worried about them because that they, they just found out that hitting it big didn't help the pain because it doesn't. 
The pain's there from before. You can work on the pain in therapy or you can live around the pain, but you're not going to get rid of the pain with, with, with fame and, and um, accomplishment. Uh, we know that easily because the people who get the fame and accomplishment either kill themselves or keep, keep working the treadmill, keep waiting for it to happen. Um, it's, uh, it's a very, it's a very uh, tricky situation, but I think one of the first steps is recognizing that life is painful. Uh, you know, at certain ages and certain places at certain times, it's not, but it's painful. And, you know, one of the worst problems of an alcoholic is that they don't think it's supposed to be painful, so they're constantly trying to fix it. You know, if you know that it's painful, um, the idea that, that you want to die is also a little bit quieter because, oh, yeah, it's painful. It's painful today, isn't it? Yes. But um, are there possibilities for a good moment today? Yes. Well, is yeah. it worth it to me? Well, yeah. Right. One of the things that I, I lean on that helps me is like I always, uh, you know, it's always helpful for me to remember that if I didn't know what pain was, I wouldn't know what happiness was. Like you can't have one without right. the other. If there, if there were no, if there was absolutely no pain, then I wouldn't know what happiness was. Like there, right. I would have nothing to I, I compare agree. it to, you know? I just wish the ratios were reversed. Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, and I want to ask you to, um, to elaborate on something you said earlier about how if somebody takes their own life, other people die. Because I think this part of your argument uh, in the book is something that might take uh, some readers um, a longer time to get around to. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, it seems like it's a, a deeper argument that might require uh, some long thought to, to, to come to terms with. I, I tend to agree with you, but I'd love to hear you. I guess of... to come to, to terms with, but for me, I was just completely overwhelmed by the, the data. Um, you know, I put in... Uh, a small fraction of the the studies that I found that showed this, and and you know that chapter was pretty thick of of one after another looking at uh, looking at these communities that have suicide clusters and doing really careful work to to see uh, was it that one was following the next and and finding that to be the case over and over again. You know the the other argument for it is maybe, you know, a, something was disappointing to the whole group and they each killed themselves for their own reasons, but, but that doesn't turn out to be the answer. Um, people, the people who do, do it know each other or uh, are the same age and gender um, or are the same profession. They see themselves in, in the person who did it and, and um over and over, we see these clusters start up. And for each one of these people, I don't know, a couple hundred people suffer for the rest of their lives. Yeah. It's, uh, it's a th yeah, the, I, the survivors. I mean, you know, like I think about my friend Judd and what a good yeah. guy he was. And I think about yeah. um, just how devastating it was and, yeah. and will always be for me and for all of his close friends. And, and, you know, I knew him in college. I'm also friends with people who grew up with him. Uh, and then, of course, there's his immediate family, uh, his parents, yeah. and like you know, I can't even. Yeah. I have a daughter. I can't even imagine. You know, so yeah. it's hard for me. Yeah, to... that's that's a point I make a lot. If 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 someone who's sad doesn't kill themselves, they they're saving your child's life. 
they're taking that idea of suicide a little bit out of the culture. And by just staying alive, they're saving your child's life. Maybe not the specifics, but certainly if you want your niece to survive her dark night to the soul, you've got to survive yours. The rates of if parents do it, the children's rates are three times as high. Um, there's just, there's no question. It's uh, it, 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 it's a profound influence, and and we can change it. I mean, obviously, there's not more mental illness in the last ten years, and in terms of the economy, the downturn wasn't a full ten years ago, and it was already going up before this ten year period I'm mentioning. So it's some of it is people copying other people. The way we stop smoking together, the way we get heavier together, the way we decide to have three children or four or two, um, the, the way we decide not to wear hats anymore, we follow each other in these profound ways. Well, and there's also and, there's also evidence that you point to in the book of you know uh, celebrities taking their own lives. Oh yeah. you know that's an indicator oh, yeah. as well. There's great evidence for that, and that's been going back uh, to the '60s. Marilyn Monroe killed herself, and the the suicide rate in the country went up 12 percent. Um, yeah, it's, uh, and it's well-documented even back before they had good statistics. There's, there's clear, um, clear knowledge. Certain books were banned, like the sufferings of young Goethe by Goethe, uh, was banned in many countries because, um, not only was the suicide rate appearing to go up, no one was counting, but it was appearing to go up, but also these young men and women were dressing in his, in, in Goethe's, uh, yellow waistcoat and holding the book open to that page where he kills himself. I mean, it was very clear what was happening. That's back in the day was, when, that's back in the day when books were, were right at the center of the culture. I can't imagine that's that. That's right. You know, that's right. And that's where the story was. But you know, when somebody, uh, famous does it and you know, I'm sorry that fame comes with responsibilities, but it does. Um, and it's scary. Uh, it, it makes an impression on other people. Um, it's interesting that Seattle was so up on this that when Kurt Cobain killed himself, they did a lot of community outreach and the suicide rate didn't go up. But the calls to the help hotline, the suicide help hotline, went up like crazy. So we know it affected people, but the talking worked. Well, and it's like, I think there's a line in the book uh, where you're quoting Camus. Uh, and mm-hmm. he's talking about his, his suspicion that more than half of the human population is really thinking about this. Like it's a yes. vacillating between, you know, wanting to yes. live and wanting to die. And that doesn't yes. seem that far off to me. I think a lot, I think a, a lot of people, maybe even a majority of people, um, have this as a, some kind of mental preoccupation or like a deep yeah. ph- philosophical question. And yeah. when you have a high, a high profile suicide, particularly if it's an artist, um, or, Somebody, I don't know, who's moved you or who you look to for um, mm-hmm. I don't know, guidance or relief or whatever, it's, pow- right. it's, a, it's a powerful negative when they wind up taking their own yeah. life. And it, it reconfigures the order, I guess, of what you might consider possible. Or if you happen, to be, right. if you happen to be teetering on the edge, maybe it makes you think that it's the, the right decision or whatever. And yeah. it's, it's a hugely destructive act. It's just... Yeah, ugh. it is. And, and you know... Once they're gone, I, I I don't blame anybody. I mean, I've never had that feeling, you know, of, of they shouldn't have done it because of. I just feel like, look, these ideas exist. Some of them are mine, but most of them I was able to find uh, beautiful um, explications of them through history, through philosophers and people of the world and artists and poets. 
And uh, nobody should die without having heard the arguments. Nobody should die without having heard the argument against suicide. I mean, if you hear them all and you're still making your own decisions, what, okay, then we ought to move on to something else. But, but just as a bare minimum, right now in our culture, we're doing a disservice to each other. In most other cultures throughout most of history, there was a robust argument against suicide. If it was that suicide was something the devil wanted and God didn't, then at least, and you can read them, people saying, the devil and, the, and God fought within me all night, but, but uh, we vanquished the devil, and we were glad. So that that this woman from the the 1600s had, or or I think a little earlier actually, um, 1500s maybe, uh, she had a, a model in her head with which to resist suicide. She had a helper model, and she also was able to sort of stigmatize the, that feeling of wanting to as just a small part of her, or as not really a full part of her, and she survived it. Now. You know, most people today, if they believe in God, they don't believe in the kind of God that would be mad at them for it or that that is so against it. Through most of history, the church was so against suicide that it, um, I talk about this a lot in the book, that it would torture the corpses and keep the estate away from the surviving family. So there were real strong reasons not to kill yourself. And, And the ancient world, though it had a few suicides that it thought well of, as did uh, the ancient Hebrews, and the very early Christians, um, they they also had these really strong arguments against the, the ancient Greeks and ancient Romans wrote beautiful um, descriptions of how we should see ourselves in this world and and how we should hang on and how it's it's wrong to kill yourself. Um, well, I was and, you know in, and, the, in the historical yeah. part of your book, I was I was kind of struck by how many major figures from history. Um, that you alluded to had taken their, their own lives. I wasn't aware of this, you know, or I just wasn't, it wasn't at the front of my mind, but it, it had taken like, they like did, who? Well, I mean, just say, so you know, there's the Socrates, which of course I was aware of, but then, um, right. But still that was sort of, we wouldn't call that suicide today. That that was a very so, sort of forced execution. We right. call it suicide because he didn't mind so much and he did it with such grace and he drank the hemlock, but they handed it to him and they'd, you know, he, he, He'd gotten the, the sentence to die in a in a court of law, so that's one. Um, but he, but but he was also it should, it should be said as well though that he he was anti suicide to his followers as he was on essentially death row or whatever. You know he it wasn't that he came yeah. down on the, he didn't come down on the side of this is a good thing. He just kind of was no, to not it. at all. He told his friends and students around him that they must not do this unless he, unless they too are are called to do it by uh, uh, by the state. Um, yeah, he said it, it was wrong, and what we, one had to do was stay at one's post and trust the world and trust each other, and and keep keep going. Okay, and so now did Plato and Aristotle? And forgive me for not remembering. I have a horrible memory. Uh, I read this like two, <laughs> two, two days ago, and I already forget. But um, I know Seneca was another one. Uh, also ordered by Nero to oh, kill himself. Okay, and then uh, Plato and Aristotle. How did they die? <laughs> Uh, natural causes. Natural causes. Um, okay, so they yeah. they escaped the the legacy. That's um, right. 
But I don't know. And, and, you know, with regard to the history of suicide and how thought has evolved, um, you know, you do a really wonderful job of tracing it. Like that's a, that's a part of the um, discussion that I was not aware of in depth. And, right. you know, where do you think, I mean, is there any way to encapsulate it? Um, you're obviously working with a long arc, but is there a way to encapsulate where things were and how they've changed and, and like where we are now, you know, as a, as a culture and a society? Like, well, yeah, I, I can give you the, the one of the very broad stories, which is that the ancient world um, had many good arguments against suicide, including Seneca. Seneca wrote brilliantly on how bad depression and boredom feels. He, 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 it makes you feel better reading his misery. Um, but, and he also wrote things. He wrote a uh, uh, once that he wanted to kill himself, but he thought of his aged father and the that the the courage that he would no longer have to bear up his father would have to bear up twice as much and so he and that 's when he says uh, sometimes it is courage just to live um, so the ancient world was of two minds about it there, there was a time and a place but um, but mostly people shouldn 't and it seems like mostly people didn't because they lived in very tight communities and were not alienated and, and, and it changed things. Um, then when the Christian world takes over, it takes over relatively pro-suicide too, in a way. Many scholars have seen Jesus as a suicide. Um, it's in John. That, and I should interrupt you. That interested me. I wasn't aware of, of people thinking that. Yeah, well, he says, and John says, and, and uh, there, there are lots of places where Jesus says, I, I, no one takes my life. I lay it down on my own ground. Now, if you're 100% sure that you're going to another place, it's, it's a little different, but it's not that different. Many people commit suicide 100% sure they're going to another place. Um, but he, uh, it's been suggested that the martyrs that followed was a sort of suicide cluster um, because many of them didn't wait to be killed by someone else. They killed themselves. And, and in the, in the 300s, the church councils first started to um, strike from the records of martyrs, anyone who did it really, who really wanted to die for their own reasons. And then about 50 years later, there was another edict saying, not only are you not on the martyrs list, you're excommunicated if you try, if you kill yourself, even if you kill yourself at, under the guise of being a martyr. And it got, it got more and more extreme. Um, and, you know, Aquinas, uh, who's at the end of the, the middle ages, he said, God says no, but he added, um, it was Augustine in the early part of the Middle Ages who said, God, God said no, because he said, thou shalt not kill uh, in, the, in, the, uh, in Deuteronomy, and so that was the Ten Commandments, and so that was enough to, to know you shouldn't kill yourself. Um, but Augustine adds to it the two secular reasons, that you owe it to yourself to stay alive and that you owe it to your community. But the God argument was just too strong to, to go with, and everybody went with that, so that by the time you get to the Enlightenment, even before the Enlightenment, for a good 50 years, there had been sort of uh, uh, these these rationalist clubs where they questioned every aspect of religion, all the you know virgin birth and and saints and everything, and they also questioned the church's stance against suicide. So by the time of the Enlightenment, rationalist thinking was on the side of a lot of these people were called libertines because 
part of what they were thinking was going to disappear when the church finally disappeared was any kind of sexual rules. Um, you know, they didn't know uh, that that some of these things, like murder, for instance, would would end up being bad. See, so that's no problem for me to know because I believe that people made up morality and then made up religion around it. Um, so, of course, the morality still stands in a lot of cases, um, even after you get rid of the church. Um, so the Enlightenment fought vociferously, mostly two people. Um, David Hume was a genius, um, but seemed to have been writing an almost satirical paper uh, because he doesn't argue about how a person feels killing themselves or who, what they do to other people, what they do to their future life. He just talks about how the church is wrong. He says, I'm not allowed to kill myself because God doesn't want me dead yet. Then what if a, a rock is falling on my head and I step away? Am I also sinning? Um, and he, he writes these funny things, but they're all directed at making fun of the church prohibition. Right. And the Baron Dolbach in France does the same thing. And but these two essays both seem to argue that if anything goes wrong, you should go ahead and kill yourself. Um, they really are sort of satirical pieces, um, but they took took over and it became one of the sort of liberal progressive ideas along with the right to free speech. Um the right to self-determination in in occupation and the right to kill yourself and one of these things does not belong it's it's not quite the same thing um and 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 we shouldn't be treating it that way the right to to the right to take your own life if you're in in extremists in in agony and pain and dying um is one thing but there's very little reason to to put despair suicide and euthanasia suicide in the same word. And well, I think that's what, where we've gone wrong. Well, okay. Cause, and I, you know, what I, what comes to mind for me is, uh, indiv- the individual and versus the collective and the way that, um, you know, back in the day when you were talking about, um, you know, older, um, older times or ancient times, the, right. the close knit communities that people lived in and right. how that mitigated against suicide. And then I think of modern, you know, modern times where, um, you know, people can feel really alienated, even living in yeah. uh, Brooklyn or New York City. You know, you're in your little yep. one bedroom apartment and you're among all these people yep. and yet there's not enough human connection. And right. when you feel that sense of isolation or you view the world through the prism of individualism, that we're, we're not interconnected, that what we do does not affect other people or that right. I'm my own little self. I'm my own little pod right. and, you know, I'm me and you're you and there's nothing um, connecting us. I think that's a, a, uh, an objectively false view. And I think that it's also a big part of the problem. We need to find a way to build yeah. communities. And I'm a hundred percent with you. I, I, it's something that I thought before I wrote the book, but boy, did it come through in the book that, that even just thinking about the other sad people out there who you can help live by living gives you a little bit of a community. I know it does, as bizarre as it sounds, because it's it's done it for me. Uh, I feel low sometimes, and I think about the other people who are feeling low, and I have some solidarity with them. But then in the broader sense that you were speaking of, absolutely, we have to make community. It's a, it's a pain in the ass. you got to look for parking. you got to miss your shows, but you've got to do it. Well, um, and especially, I think especially in the secular world. Like, you know, I have my problems with yeah. organized religion, but one yeah. of the things I envy for people who um, are able to participate 
and enjoy it is the fact that they do have a community and it's sort of, yeah. you know, it's sort of ready-made. You walk in the door, there are people there, you're of a like Absolutely. mind. You can eat donuts Absolutely. together, you know, and like for people who are, right. who are largely secular, um, right. it, it takes more work to find a community and to create the kinds of community rituals that I think um, can help sustain a person and can you yeah. know, enrich a life. Yeah, no question. Um, and there are lots of ways to do it, but they, but well, even church takes action. You got to get up and do it. Um, but, but uh, there's all sorts of people. Who, well, AA is one. It's an in- interesting one in this right. country that that brings people together and they, and they they feel very open and connected. Um, but there are uh, there are all sorts of sort of secular meetings where they you know sing sing uh, sort of secular uplifting songs or play uh, the great music and. Um, and yeah, that broadens out to other things of going to concerts and going to plays. And um, well, you know, it's, it's, it's funny that you mentioned concerts because I was thinking of that when I was reading your book, and I was thinking along these very lines, you know, with regard to community. And I think to myself, boy, if somebody's feeling low and if somebody is uh, entertaining suicidal thoughts, one of the best things that you can do is just go to a concert. Because I've always, especially if it's uplifting music, like don't go to a death right. metal show. <laughs> right, uh, right. Or, or, but maybe you do. Maybe that's a way for you. Maybe to, you do. Yeah. Maybe you do. Maybe you get, you, get, you, get some of the heat out. Right. Yeah. But I mean, I've always found um, a very palpable, positive charge from all that human energy. And I think back especially to when I was an adolescent, uh, right, right around the time uh, my friend Judd took his own life. Yeah. Uh, like how, how central music and li- the live music experience was to our lives at that stage yeah. of our lives. And I think it was kind of like I, I always, you know, I view it in retrospect as kind of an attempt at secular church. You know, oh, yeah. we wanted to go sing. I wrote a whole thing about that in, in my book, The Happiness Myth, um, just sort of a, 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 an anthropology of us, of the things that we do in order to have what we think of as a good life and how historically uh, specific that is to our moment. And one of the big things I talk about is that um, – you know, one of the best things about religion was just people getting together and singing and dancing, just getting together and saying the same things. And any opportunity to do that, sports is good too if you're into it, but nothing's as good as a concert because you can sing a little, you can dance a little, the music's uplifting, and you get the same feelings that you get in any large community, a demonstration against something that um, you believe in. You just feel that feeling of the crowd. And Durkheim spoke a lot about this. Um, uh, Durkheim's the great, uh, about 100 years ago, he formulated the modern term terminology for discussing suicide. He still thought very highly of it. It's funny that in his uh, very long tome called Suicide, uh, you know, which I'd read all of, in graduate school and I read all of again for this uh, book and only in the very end, the last couple of pages, does he think about uh, what uh, a morality of the issue and comes up with it's wrong um, in a way that that suicide is wrong because it, it breaks the human project that we're here. We're here not just to live and die and try to have as much fun as we can and maybe make it better while we... No, there's a human project and keeping up the beauty of it, keeping up the meaning is is a very invisible but extremely real part of our lives. Wittgenstein said something very different, uh, but that can't, comes out the same. He said if, if suicide is allowed 
then everything is allowed. And, and Wittgenstein, we should add, had uh, lost, what, three siblings to suicide? Three out of four of his brothers and one of his cousins killed themselves. And these people were rich. They were among the richest family of Europe. Um, but they had uh, some terrible Weltschmerz, you know, they had, they were just in pain. And, and Wittgenstein thought about suicide his whole life, but he referenced the hundred year old uh, I, words from Schopenhauer, um, who suggested for very different reasons that not, one must not kill oneself. Uh, just I mentioned that as an example of how people can, in fact, be influenced by words and ideas to stay alive, and they're glad they did. Well, that's a, that's, can, a, that's a good point, because we've been talking about how um, the negative charge of suicidal behavior can be contagious, but there is also um, a positive contagion, you know, like you can sure. spread the message and, and like, you know, these kinds of thoughts can help people decide not to. So there's a, for sure. a, a reverse. I, I get emails every day. Well, not every day, but every three days I get around three um, t- telling me, thanks, got me through the night. Some of them are, are sort of charmingly uh, uh, undecided. So they say so far, <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, but, but still I get these emails they don't say much, so it's not too overwhelming. Um, sometimes they do. Um, but, uh, yeah, they say thanks for the ideas. Well, so it's, it's, I know it's, they're it's, helpful. Uh, you know what I also think about? I remember doing research for the novel that I wrote, and um, I was reading about the Golden Gate Bridge, which is like kind of a right. infamous suicide destination. There's even been a right. documentary about it that I um, That's right. I haven't been able to watch. It's just so so heartbreaking. But uh, yeah. You know, I remember reading about it, and there was a guy, at, I believe Berkeley, like a, a a psychiatrist or someone along those lines, did a study uh-huh. of people who had survived. That's um, right. Their yeah, attempts. I have that in the book. Well, yeah, yeah. Pe- people who survived their attempts um, usually, uh, you know, it was something like twenty six years later, they followed up on these people, and ninety four percent of them were either still alive or had died of natural causes. 94% of people who were, they weren't thinking about it. They were climbing. They were, they were going to be done. And somebody caught them and stopped them, or they did it, and they survived. Um, there's one guy who tells us that uh, the second after he jumped, he said to himself, all my problems are curable except that I have just jumped off the right. Golden Gate Bridge. Right. You know, that. and you realize, and you realize from all the 911 calls, there are millions of them uh, saying, I've just taken a bottle of pills and a bottle of booze. Um, because sometimes people need to see, to see it up a little closer before they realize this is a bad, bad idea. Um, but, but yeah, it's really important to note that so many people who make it through the bad moment never go and do it again. If you can just wait it out, if you can just hold on. Yeah. So, but 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 fifty two percent of um, gun deaths in this country are suicide, and fifty two percent of suicides in this country are gun deaths. So there's no question. If you have a gun in the house and you have that bad moment, you you don't have enough time. I don't understand guns. That's another show, but I mean, it's, yeah. it seems like a yeah. bad thing to have in the house personally, but yeah. it's just me. So I want to ask you, you mentioned uh, booze and a, a bottle of pills and, you know, a, a lot of times suicidal behavior goes hand in hand with substance abuse. And, um, sure. you know, I, I, I say that I've lost two friends to suicide. Um, I include, I mean, it's, it's kind of, I mean, I guess this is a question for you. Do you consider people who... Um, are drug addicts and who kill themselves with drugs and alcohol to be, is that a form of suicide or is that a misperception? 
Well, we're a little bit into the sort of poetics of semantics because, you know, we all know that if you cut your calorie rate to an extraordinary degree, so you look like skin and bones, you're likely to live longer. Um, So are all of us who are not doing that killing ourselves? Obviously, this thing is a continuum. And yes, you can look at a person who's drinking and drugging and saying, they're they're killing themselves. Um, There's certainly, when you have single car car crashes with a person who was depressed or just suffered a reversal, um, sometimes it's inane to not call that a suicide, you know, um, even though we can't tell. But um, there's also... There's also the simple fact that we're all struggling and we make different decisions to try to mitigate the pain and to make it easier to be human beings. And um, some of those, you don't live very long. And of course, that's not a good idea. Um, But there is something, there's something extremely different in how the community perceives and experiences the loss. They still know the person did it, but there isn't this feeling of a person walking away from life saying, you know, even the high isn't worth it anymore. Even Even anything isn't worth it anymore. So I think culturally there's a big difference. In terms of the individual, hard to say, right? They end up dead anyway, um, young and having not allowed their future self to unfold. It's a hard one. Well, but but, it also makes me, I mean, it, you talk about human suffering as just kind of a primary fact of life. It, it, life is yeah. painful and it's an unavoidable thing. And I think the only way that I can, you know, that I know of to, um, cope with, it. cope with it is to lean into it. And I think that Right. Among you know, I've been guilty of this in my earlier years, and I see it around me uh, in my community. Uh, whether it's my community at large or my community of friends, like I see a lot of people uh, drinking and taking drugs to excess sure. as a way to self-medicate and to sure. numb themselves against pain. And I worry that when it comes to suicidal ideation um, or you know the really the, the darker sides of human nature, that these things yeah. you know they they have their temporary relief, you know, symptom relief, but ultimately they wind up um, causing damage and making things worse. Like that's just. Yeah, it certainly seems so. I mean, uh, you know, I'm not against all drugs all the time, but, um, but using them to excess seems like a bad, bad way to go. And, um, and it is certainly true that many, many suicides were, um, were drunk. When, when they did it, you know, the inhibitions are down, the clear thinking is down and, um, or they were hung over, you know, <laughs> the hangover, right. the hangover almost seems like worse. You know, it's like the dark morning right. after or whatever it is, you know, right. I, feel- I actually haven't heard that. I'll have to look into that, but definitely drunk. Um, and, and, uh, yeah, I bet pot doesn't increase it, but, uh, but, but drunk definitely gives you the feeling of, you know those moments of of total despair, and you can't think clearly, and you you're very um, 
you know, this moment bound, the same thing that makes you not go home and get some sleep so that you'll be fresh in the morning to do what you need to do. That kind of forgetfulness of the future, um, I think also can, can add into that sense of I might as well just kill myself. So yeah, if you're, if you're depressed, either stay away from the alcohol or make sure there's nothing in the house that would make it easy. Um, that, that works to a a weird degree. I, I, I found some amazing, uh, things like, uh, in the 90s, the UK stopped selling acetaminophen, uh, Tylenol, in large bottles. They now make it so that you have to buy like six at a time, and they're in these tight little bu- bubble wraps. So you would have to go to a bunch of different pharmacies, buy a whole bunch of these. You need about 50 to go, and then you have to unbubble wrap 50. And guess what? The suicide rate went down. Make it inconvenient. Make it real inconvenient. <laughs> So, Make it real inconvenient. Uh, before I let you go, I thought like maybe like a, uh, a logical way to close would be um, to ask you what, uh, you know, if there's anybody listening who might be dealing with suicidal thoughts or, um, you know, struggling with this kind of darkness, you know, what is, what is your message to them, like, you know, in your book and, and right now? Yeah. I mean, I put, I put all my best ideas in the book and the book, um, gives me solace, and um, so there's just that. And, and I don't mean all all of them being just ideas. Sometimes reading about sad people who struggled against it, um, reading their stories is, is its own therapy. Um, so for that reason, I say read the book. But um, you know, the other thing to do is just is just try to realize if you can think of how devastated you would be if someone who you knew, even if you didn't really love them, even if they weren't that close anymore, how it would hurt. And then realize you mean that to a whole lot of people. And so when you feel like you don't know what you're for, you have to wait and find out. And you have to let it be okay that sometimes you feel useless. Sometimes most of us feel useless. And then the celebrities who seem to be constantly in need, um, and so they don't feel useless. Instead, they feel like they're not loved for who they are. So we at least know that people around us are are there because they like us. Um, We really have have to be able to make it through the very worst times so we can do the the deeper philosophy that most people are quite capable of. They just need the same guidance other philosophers have needed, which is a little history of philosophy and a little history of behavior. And then uh, finally, like to, to people who are survivors or people who are, you know, I'm thinking of Ned's friends um, or fans, yeah. you know, who might be reeling from this. Um, but there are obviously yeah. countless uh, other situations that are similar. Like, what's the message to people who are feeling the grief and who might be uh, in danger of um, the contagion, you know, infecting right. them? Right. You know, what's, what do right. we say to them? Well, one thing is we, we, we tell them about this contagion and say, you know, don't let it get you. Um, uh, uh, saying it a little with a little more sophistication and details helps, but even just there's a contagion involved in this. Don't let it get you is is a pretty good place to start. Um, in terms of pain and grief, it's uh, grief just has to get lived through. It's it's such a, a pity, but if you drink if you drink to dull it, then the same grief is there when you when you stop drinking. There, there's there's no 
there's really no way to deal with grief other than to go through it. Talk therapy is something I believe in tremendously. I'm quite at odds with our society thinking everything is so medical right now. But, you know, if if you need a little help with uh, Prozac or something like that, go do that for a little while. It'll help. It'll help with the grief. Um, but I, I, for me, I think talk therapy is the best way. Um, and, and also just recognizing that you're, you're part of the human experience and part of the human experience is grief. And sometimes you have to um, just live through it. You know, either by doing something productive that takes your mind off of it, if you're in a place where you can garden, garden. Um, but some some of us just feel so bad we can hardly get out of bed um, when we're stuck with that kind of grief. And that means you just have to wait it out. Well, we waited out the flu. Right. you got to try. And reach out to you friends. Know? There's got to be, you know, don't don't hesitate to reach out. I think a lot of people who, yeah. who might yeah. be in a dark place... Um, you know, don't realize that if they just picked up the phone and and were honest yeah. with, with people close to them, that they would have more support. I agree, but I life. totally understand why they don't. So much of the time, they don't want to be a downer. They don't want to be a burden. They don't. They they imagine what the friend's going to say, and they say to themselves, "Well, I just say that to myself." And they they you know, it's there are a lot of blocks against it. So if you if you don't feel like you can reach out to friends, just find a way to get out there among other people. Um, you know, if 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 you're uh, if for whatever you're in, you're inclined, but music is a, a good way that we mentioned earlier. Um, but but also things where they expect you every week is a very nice thing. Take a easy free form dance class, or or uh, um, a, 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 you know join a singing group, or do something where they expect you every week, because otherwise it's hard to go. You know, mm. um, but but yeah, all of this takes. A certain amount of of work when you've been really hit by grief, but I say a lot of things in the book about about what different um, writers and scholars have suggested as ways to reconfigure what's going on in your life so that it's um, happier. Okay. Well, I certainly appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. I really enjoyed your book. It was helpful to me over the holiday as I've been. Uh, thinking a lot about Ned and his uh, family yeah. and his friends and also thinking about my own experiences uh, losing people this way. So I really appreciate yeah. it. And I hope that, uh, you know, that the the book reaches people and, and I certainly wish you well on whatever comes next. Thank you so much. This was a very interesting conversation. I really enjoyed it. All right, folks, there you have it. That is Jennifer Michael Hecht. Go get her latest. It's called Stay, A History of Suicide and the Philosophies Against It. Uh, It's a very illuminating and intelligent and life-affirming book. I highly recommend it. Uh, You can find Jennifer online at jennifermichaelhecht.com. She's on Twitter, where her handle is at Freud Einstein, and uh, she's also on the Facebook. I also feel compelled to mention that if you uh, are feeling suicidal right now or have been experiencing this and you need help, the suicide hotline is 1-800-273-TALK. This is a free service available 24-7. Uh, if you do need someone to talk to, please reach out. Uh, the, the number, once again, is 1-800-273-TALK. And if you would like to learn more about the life and work of Ned Vizzini, please visit nedvizzini.com. Uh, as many of you know, I reposted his episode, uh, number 131, in its entirety last week. Uh, otherwise, it, it only would have been available 
via premium subscription, and I wanted to make sure that everyone had access to it uh, free of charge. Uh, after doing that, a few listeners contacted me uh, expressing confusion, uh, asking why I didn't do a proper introduction to the reposting, uh, a kind of a eulogy or, or some sort of notice that it was a memorial episode. And uh, the reason for that is pretty simple. I was out of town in New York, and I was away from my uh, recording equipment. So I apologize for this. Uh, I just figured in the moment that I would put the episode back up as soon as I could for people out there uh, who might uh, want to hear it, people who might need it. So I hope that's okay, and uh, I hope you enjoyed the show. I don't know how to close it out. It's like a tough one to figure out how to close. Thanks uh, for listening. Thanks to Miles Davis. Uh, John Coltrane and the, and the rest of those guys for this music. Thanks to Jennifer Michael Hecht for taking the time to talk. Uh, and thanks to Ned. May he rest in peace. And uh, happy new year to you guys. You know, be safe, enjoy yourselves. Obviously, uh, life can be pretty tough sometimes. And I don't think we need any more evidence at this point. But uh, the good news is. Uh, it's tough for all of us. Is that good news? <laughs> no one's, uh, no one's alone in suffering. Suffering is, uh, a reality of our existence, but, uh, what's also true is that there are ways out of suffering that do not involve harming ourselves. Everything's temporary and, uh, we're all interconnected. I'm getting, you know, I'm getting, you know, I, I understand I'm getting weird here at the end. But we are all interconnected in a really deep way. It's very difficult to talk about this stuff without sounding like an asshole. So, we're interconnected. I hate to break it to you. <laughs> be good to yourselves. Be safe on New Year's Eve. Be good to one another. And uh, I will talk to you in the new year. Oh, by the way, uh, this old Lang Syne is uh, Guy Lombardo. Is it Guy Lombardo? Hang on a second. Let me try to figure this out. Yeah, it's uh, it's Guy Lombardo and uh, his orchestra. It's not Miles Davis. Miles Davis did the first uh, two songs, the transitional songs. So, Happy New Year. I'm just going to keep talking. It's just a flailing close to a very difficult episode. Happy New Year. Bring on 2014. That's what I say. I'll talk to you guys soon. <laughs>